Welcome to Citadel Dropouts, a Game of Thrones podcast for the Daily Beast. I'm Spencer Ackerman, Senior National Security Correspondent for the Daily Beast. And I'm Laura Hudson, a culture and entertainment critic at Wired and lots of other places. Citadel Dropouts is a conversation between two friends and Game of Thrones fanatics about how the characters and stories in that world connect with this world in terms of politics, sociology, diplomacy, feminism, and war. While we aren't a recap podcast per se and aren't setting out to spoil anyone, if you care about spoilers and haven't caught up with the show, you should probably do that before listening. And speaking of that show, episode five, Eastwatch, uh, Laura, did we just follow up possibly the best episode of Game of Thrones with possibly the worst? Uh, It was definitely one of the worst uh, that I've ever seen. I would say that... uh, Almost not. I was about to say, if I have to recap this, I realized I do after I get off. Uh, <laughs> there's very little that actually happens in this episode uh, in terms of action. Um, we do get to see what we see a lot in these episodes where the pieces are moving around the board to set up for the next confrontation, which is that, you know, we have these scenes that are supposed to develop characters or where, you know, moral questions are posed to them that, you know, reveal something about who, who they are. And I think we saw that with a couple of characters this episode. Uh, particularly right up front uh, with Daenerys. Uh, With Daenerys, you mentioned that this was an action-starved episode. Daenerys, however, started out burning people alive. Um, So I guess that sets up the first question that any podcast delving into the themes of Game of Thrones ought to set out to answer. Was Danny right? I mean, I, I, I... Sometimes I run into these questions with people in Game of Thrones where they decide that one person is suddenly really terrible. And I'm just really not sure why compared to the other characters, because, you know, she sets up a really clear standard for them. And 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 this is one that I certainly has come up in wars before, which is bend the knee and join me together. We will leave the world a better place than we found it or refuse and die. She doesn't come out of nowhere and just slaughter people indiscriminately. Uh, she sets up actually a very clear out for them, you know, not only to escape death, but actually to be freed. Uh, they, she actually repeats herself several times. They say no over and over again. And then she does the exact thing that she said she was going to do. So I don't think it was a clear standard at all for this reason. It's one thing if you want to say you have a standard like any ruler would have that you either bend the knee, you, you, you swear your allegiance, or you die. We understand in all matter of statecraft, a non-negotiable element is that the state has the monopoly on violence. If Daenerys is going to be queen of anything, she can't do it from a standpoint of internal rebellion. Battles are fought in order to settle something, right? These are, these are you know mechanisms of politics, as Clausewitz said, by other means. However, if she's going to say that I'm not here to murder you, she can't then also set up this supposedly genuine, real, and rich, meaningful option of then, you know, burning people alive. Because really, you know, when you think about it, it's not really an option at all. Like, if she's going to murder everyone, why would she murder the people who are going to go along with her? And so alternatively, if she's going to murder the people who don't go along with her, why mention it as a choice at all? It, it, it seemed like precisely a muddled message, and I don't really know what it really augurs for a sane standard of statecraft once once she wins. Well, I, I mean, I think there are two things there. One is how do we define murder? If you kill someone on the battlefield, do you murder them? If you execute them as a head of state, do you murder them? Because, and I think she says, I'm not going to go murder people. She means... I'm not going to slaughter you indiscriminately as my father did or as Cersei did uh, or has, which she specifically brings up as a contrast. I'm not going to just randomly kill you for no reason or for petty reasons. I'm going to do I'm going to kill you for very, very specific ones. And I'm going to give you an out. And I, I think that's a little bit different from saying that someone, quote unquote, murders because there is no not, quote unquote, murdering people in a war. It's all contextual. Well, I guess the question that, that it raised for me is, what does she do with the people who decide they're not cool with Targaryen rule, but she doesn't meet on a battlefield? I mean, I think that she just worked that out. She's going, she's going to murder them then. Yeah. I mean, she made, that, she made that option really clear to Varys as well. She said the same thing. You know, I, I'll give you a shot. I'll be absolutely fair to you. I'll listen to what you have to say. But if you betray me, I will kill you. Uh, 
it's funny. We we got shades of that with Cersei this episode too, and she was talking to Jamie. We can get to that in a little bit. That don't ever betray me again. That's right. that that sense that you know you'll you'll be fair to the people around you in as much as you can, but there is no room. Uh, there is no room for betrayal. There is no room for anything else. Uh, but I think I would argue that's a slightly different shade of what we used to see from Ned Stark. For Ned Stark, it was honor. You know, if he felt you had he had if he felt that you had betrayed your oath in some way, uh, either to the kingdom or or to a particular ruler, he would take your head off and he would do it himself with a broadsword. I hear what you're saying, but this is why I keep going back in in episodes that we've done before, lamenting that we don't really have much of a standard anymore for how the average person sees this Mm -hmm. because it's one thing for Varys to have that choice before him because he is offering some service. He is, he is on Dragonstone like he was in Marine under the pretext that he is actually going to do something for Daenerys. So Daenerys has a really good point, a good, a good, you know, leg to stand on uh, if Varys betrays her. Similarly, on the battlefield, you are facing people who have arrayed against you. I, I, I see. I, I'm not arguing with the point that it's meaningful for Daenerys to tell everyone after a battle is over, this thing has consequences. You fought against me. You lost. You can leave here with your lives if you swear allegiance to me. And if you don't, then we're at an impasse that my dragon is going to resolve. Again, all that I, I think is is is. Not really arguable. Uh, the Tarleys knew what they were getting into, even if they didn't appreciate that they were in a pre-nuclear age and Danny isn't. Nevertheless, when you're looking at this from the perspective of the person who's got to live under Targaryen rule, given that this is sort of the overarching question that Danny has been posing, that we've been getting Cersei arguing against, however opportunistically, uh, it's the, at this point the central question of the show. Does she stand for something? I think it's the way Jon Snow put it last week. Does she stand for something different or doesn't she? And if you're someone hearing about the field of fire, really at that point, do you, do you wonder, you know, how is she going to define betrayal? Does she define betrayal as the absence of active allegiance? Does she define it as, you know, perhaps like, like her father would? I think you have a really good reason to view as, a, as an average person the situation at the very least ambiguously when you're wondering, which of these people do I face certain death from? I think that's I think that's absolutely true. I do, however, think knowing what we know about Daenerys and in her whole little speech about breaking the wheel, that she has different standards for people with power and people without it. You know, like if 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 you are a lord, if you are a soldier, if you are someone who has power or would exert power against her uh, or has tried to exert power against her, I think that her reactions are going to be very different than if you are some innkeep who just maybe doesn't like the Targaryens. I think you and I know that. I think those who have interacted with Daenerys, particularly up close, have reason to at least cling to that, even if maybe they're, they're not so convinced of it, um, like, for instance, John. But if you're hot pie, do you have an independent reason to trust that yet? Or, or you know, I think this is, this is one of the reasons why, why earlier we were talking about, you know, Tyrion – uh, as a potential political liability, not necessarily in this case specifically, but it sort of heightens how probably the best case for Daenerys comes from Missandei that we saw last week, right? That Missandei, someone who was an enslaved person, liberated entirely because of Daenerys, and then Daenerys didn't stop a campaign of liberation. She stood for something on a principle and 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 saw that through. We have some Disputes about whether you would agree with that now that she's left Marine or not. But nevertheless, like, Missandei holds a really good argument for Daenerys and, Desand- and Missandei's on Dragonstone. I mean, I, it's interesting, too, because I, you know, I feel like so the Tarleys decided to, to die based on their honor and allegiance to Cersei, correct? And I, I found that to be really suspect because something that comes up a few times throughout this episode is that loyalty and allegiance has become really fluid. You know, the Tarleys, uh, I mean, all of them at some point served the Targaryens if you go far enough back, and then they mm-hmm. served the Baratheons, uh, and then Marjorie was queen, and now Cersei's queen, and people were serving in the north, and, you know, wildlings and ravens, you know, lions are laying down with the lambs. Everybody at this point has has switched sides. So I find it a little odd, to be totally honest, that the Tarleys, who just in a previous episode turned on the Tyrells, their 
longtime allies are the ones that step out and say, we absolutely do can't do this because of honor and allegiance. Because if we've learned anything from Game of Thrones throughout the course of it, it's that those ideas have become eroded to the point that I don't I think barely anyone is serving whoever they used to serve 20, 30 years ago or 10 years ago. And they might have also shot back into Tyrion's face, you know, the last time. I heard anything about you. First, you were defending King's Landing from Stannis's people, and then you were killing your father. Uh, so, yeah, like the, the, that's just to your point. Like all of this stuff is 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 completely malleable. It's fallen apart, and I think the only thing that really explains the Tarly stance a is not particularly good writing, and b because they wanted to have a certain parallel. Uh, with the way the Starks were killed, Ned Stark's father, uh, by the Mad King, Daenerys' father, um, as this episode, as we will discuss in detail, deals so much with the theme of fathers and sons and basically bros being bros and dudes being bros and, and all that, that stuff that, that dudes do with bros. Um, here in particular, you know, you're killing, you know, th- there's no reason why we had to keep on learning the names of, you know, Randall and Dickon Tarly except to see them, now we know, dive by a dragon and, and like, care something about them. Um, but the parallel, uh, Laura, do you want to explain for those who didn't read the books or maybe get confused by the chronology, uh, what they were going for with, uh, with you know, the callback to, to the Starks? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the whole, the incident that really kicked off uh, Robert's Rebellion was, you know, the, the Mad King's son supposedly kidnapped uh, um uh, Ned Stark's sister, uh, Robert Baratheon's fiance, and when uh, Ned Stark's father and brother went to protest this, uh, the Mad the Mad King killed them in a particularly gruesome fashion, um, burning the father Rickard alive in his armor, uh, while the brother Brandon uh, had a noose around his neck and a sword just out of reach, so he strangled himself to death trying to save his father. So again, it was fire-based death. It was a father and a son. And if you actually look at the phonology of the names, they actually Actually sound quite similar. Randall, Brandon, Dickon, Rickard. It's they're going they're going real hard with the hammer here. However, I think that this is actually a great example of how that analogy breaks down because uh, Brandon and Rickard Stark uh, went to their monarch with an extremely reasonable request uh, to address a problem that they had within the protocol of their world and were gruesomely tortured to death for basically no reason, as opposed to this situation where Danny confronts these men who have uh, attacked her and tried to kill her, uh, offers them a reasonable way out tells them they will be executed if they don't, and they straight up refuse. I think the, the, only, the only leg on which to stand on in, in terms of this comparison is the fact that she uses fire, which is a particularly horrible way to die. So I think you can make the argument that her execution method is not humane, but it is, it is very, very different from what happened with her father. And I think even Tyrion recognizes that. He's one of the first people to say she's not her father. But I think that it's being set up in a very blunt way uh, to show us that perhaps she might be on that path. But again, I don't see the evidence of that quite yet. You could say she's not not her father. But we also have another contestant for Mad Queen. Um, you had a fascinating observation about this Cersei scene that that you know we end up uh, figuring out what Cersei does with this reversal of fortune uh, she encounters. Yeah, what's so? I mean, Jamie comes to her and and, and presents the fact uh, the, the same observation you made in the last episode, Spencer, that they are now facing a nuclear force. Uh, they're completely screwed. Uh, there's no way to win. Uh, and when Jamie presents Cersei with this information, you know her response. Uh, Actually, you know what? It's not clear to me what her response is. That they'll continue to fight until they die, but I don't understand what her strategy is here. She says something vague about wanting to fight Daenerys the way that their father would. I've come to believe that an accommodation with the Dragon Queen could be in our immediate interest. She has the numbers. If we want to beat her, we have to be clever. But I actually don't see any clear strategy for her moving forward other than, I guess we'll do something and keep fighting dot, dot, dot. None of this made sense to me. This is one of the reasons why it it struck me as a particularly weak episode. Um, No one's plans really make sense here. Um, I have no idea 
what Tyrion is thinking. Um, so I guess the way we'd have to order this is Tyrion comes up with, with a scheme I don't quite understand. Oh, yeah. What is, what is that? What, that doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, this, this is like when you realize like a Zemo's scheme in Captain America Civil War doesn't make any sense. Can I like actually try to like order this out with you in my Please. head? Because I just want to make sure that I understand it. So there is a an army of zombies about to mount march south of the wall. True. And they're like, well, and they're like, we don't have enough men to fight it. So we'll send like five guys True. to steal one of them. They'll go all the way up to the north. We'll steal just one zombie. Then we'll go all the way back down, past Droganstone, all the way down to King's Landing, show it to Cersei. Because dot dot dot. What's because hap- dot dot dot. And meanwhile, what are they? They and then they just storm south of the wall. What is the plan? I don't understand the plan, Spencer. What's the goal? Do you want to cooperate with Cersei? Do you want Cersei to fight alongside you? How is this accommodation supposed to work? Or to promise, like, or to promise not to attack Daenerys, which is a stupid thing. No one should agree with. And if there is going to be some kind of hypothetical union of forces with a woman that like Tyrion knows full well not to trust that no one has any trust or or love for uh it would lead her major ally Jon Snow to have a Lannister army in the north like none of this makes any sense at all and I feel like they're saying well we have to go up there get the zombie, bring it back down to Cersei because we don't have time for Daenerys to go fight Cersei. How many times are you going to walk the entire length of Westeros rather than have her go in with her dragons? What is the timetable? Also, like, why didn't Daenerys just say, like, no, give me one week. I'm going to have my dragons fly above the Red Keep and then this is all going to be done and then I'm going to send my armies north because I will be queen. Why Daenerys is ultimately giving Cersei a new lease on life, I don't understand. I can't think of any real historical parallel here. I just, I mean, I just realized why. Why? Uh, it's because you and I had, had thought throughout this podcast that, you know, the, the first battle uh, at the end of this season was going to be uh, the battle for the Red Keep. And then the finale of the final season would be at the Wall. I think that the only reason this is happening is a contrived narrative reason, which is that they want to do the fight at the wall this season, and they want to do the final political battle of over everything next season. So that's why Daenerys can't go to fight Cersei yet, because dot, 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 because season eight. Okay. Um, I can buy that from the perspective of making a TV show. No, that's all we have. That's the only reason. There's that moment at the end when I don't remember if it was it was Beric or Thoros where they were like, we're all pawns in a game. And who knows? We don't know why we're doing what we're doing, but we're doing it for a higher reason. And I'm like, it's the plot. It's because of the plot. That's why you're doing it. What are they going to convince Cersei of? Like they bring a zombie down and she's going to be like, no, that's right. You should be. <laughs> I guess I, I guess we have to team up now. Like, how is this accommodation supposed to work? How is, you know, you would think even just John before he leaves, he's like, I, you know, I recognize I've got, you know, my own thing to go on. But, you know, since you've started asking me, you know, my opinion here, it's probably not a good idea to have a demonstration of force, like essentially a nuclear explosion in the form of a dragon and then give back all your battlefield gains immediately. I guess everyone who died on that field died for nothing. Yeah, though, I mean, that means that basically all of the forward momentum that both of them have had would mean nothing. It would mean that all of the military excursions that have taken place this series mostly mean nothing. Let's say they team up. What happens to, say, Grey Worm at Casterly Rock? What happens to to Euron Greyjoy, who's waiting for, for his marriage contract? Are they just sort of hanging out at the gates of this fake siege, like it's a phony war um, ahead of the outbreak of, of formal hostilities of World War II? I have no idea uh, what this is supposed to accomplish Narratively, I, I, I take your point, but what? 
Yeah, and I mean, if if Daenerys truly does decide to somehow team up with Cersei and or trust her that she won't attack her, that would be the absolute most foolish thing that she could do because Cersei will 100% betray you. Every single person involved should know that. Tyrion should know it the most of all. I'm disappointed in all of you. <laughs> Everyone standing around that table at Dragonstone, I am very, very disappointed in you. You know who's really getting the, the raw end of the deal here is like, Let's say you're a Dothraki blood rider. Oh, yeah. Here you go, like, crossing, you know, this, this forbidden water. You're doing something no Dothraki has ever done. You've, you've sailed across the sea. You're, you were terrified of this, but somehow, you know, you, you were able to crew a ship. Finally, you get a chance to, like, go kill a lot of people, and you're really good at it, and they're terrible at stopping you from killing them. Mm-hmm. And, and, like, are they just supposed to sort of stop now? Is there an armistice? Where did the Dothraki go? They can't kill anyone. Do they, do they rob some people? Like, do they live off the land? Do they, do they go sack some castles? Do they hang out with these uh, Tarly and Lannister soldiers who are now, I guess, Targaryen uh, soldiers? I, I have no idea how this is supposed to work. And if you're a Dothraki, you are in this to kill people and put a woman on a throne that right now she's sort of taking a, a pause on. I mean, I think that's actually a, a better point about the Dothraki that transcends even these horrible military decisions we're looking at right now, which is, you know, the fear. They were talking about, you know, oh, shit, what if the Dothraki comes in season one? Because they were like, once these barbarians get sort of set loose here, where do you think that ends? You think you're going to give them a hold and they're going to settle down and, like, raise children and have a nice time? Because I really don't. So... If there's a neat way for this to end, I think they all have to die. I mean, maybe send them north to go fight the ice zombies. I mean, but because that's the thing is there is no way for them to be absorbed into the population of Westeros. It's fundamentally not who they are, not what they do. They will actually, Cersei kind of had a point about that. They will always be a danger to the people of Westeros. Sorry. Well, this is also a problem for Cersei, isn't it? Because her whole argument against the Targaryen restoration is that, like, here come all of these foreigners. I'm going to resist them. Join with me, you know, for for blood and soil, you know, hashtag MAGA. But now she's letting the Dothraki stay? I mean, it's pretty clear that, you know, militarily, she's helpless here. Uh, Jamie kind of settled our dispute from from, uh, the last issue about you know, what to do about the ballista or the scorpion and, like, how it, you know, might potentially stop these dragons. No, like, it's pretty clear they, they, that Jamie at least recognizes there is no stopping them. But now, I guess, like, it doesn't matter anymore that Cersei has no more argument for ruling because she, you know, correctly perceives that she's in pure survival mode. But if she's going to figure that she'll infiltrate the Targaryen alliance, undermine it from within, and they come out on top because now she's pregnant again and they have something to work toward. I have no idea how any of this is supposed to happen. Like, she thinks she's going to kill Daenerys up close and, like, the dragons will be like, oh, yeah, yeah, you can ride me now. Yeah, we did actually have that nice little moment with John and the dragon where they connected really on a deep level because, you know, he's Targaryen and can probably, you know, sense that in his blood. You know, there, there's long been that question of, you know, there are three dragons. Could three people ride them? I don't know. Just something to think about. But, but do, we have a, do we have an understanding of, you know, Cersei was, was at a position of total reversal and, and this was over for her. Um, and it was just a matter of time mm-hmm. uh, had Daenerys continued on the course that she was on at the end of last week's episode, um, which would have been, I guess, really the only sensible thing for her to do if she was actually focused on this goal. Now, Cersei gets kind of a new lease on life, but is it? I mean, no, because I, I think we get this this faux dramatic sense that she's really, you know, done something to create a pivot. There is no pivot. Stop waiting for the pivot. Uh, Spencer, like, because she sort of says some ominous stuff about never giving up and, and fighting and being ruthless and also I'm pregnant and then, you know, stares into the middle distance, like, you know, really kind of ominously. And then you're supposed to come away with this sense that, you know, she's really come up with some great strategy for turning this all on its head, but she's actually said nothing. Like, like many great politicians, she has, she has, she has made some bold, bombastic statements about how she's going to win, but she has actually said nothing. 
nothing. She's passed more legislation in the first eight months, Laura. <laughs> it's, uh, but yeah, but it's, it's empty. Um, you know, and real question, I know this is more of a narrative question, but do you think this is why George R. R. Martin had so much trouble writing the next book? I mean, I'm just saying. It, it was interesting. I, there were a couple of scenes uh, that made me start to think about a number of the major players uh, in the game right now, uh, kind of along two axes. The, the, the one that reminded me of it the most is that scene we see between Arya and Sansa. Uh, and we, two, we see the two Stark sisters wandering around Winterfell together, you know, presumably becoming closer. But there's that moment uh, where the Northern Lords are criticizing Jon. Sansa doesn't stand up to her. And in private, Arya says, why don't you cut their heads off if uh, they're getting too uppity. Glover has 500 men, Royce has 2,000. Offend them and John loses his army. Not if they lose their heads first. I'm sure cutting off heads is very satisfying, but that's not the way you get people to work together. And Sansa, you know, wisely says, you know, that's not how you make friends. Actually, I'm part of a coalition. It's a lot more complicated than that. Also, I'm not a murderer. That's an insane thing to say. <laughs> I mean, which is, you know, and Arya has kind of a weird coldness in her eyes. It's a little creepy when she's, you know, making her little advisories that worried me. Um, she, yeah, but it reminded me a bit of, of, you know, Cersei's philosophy as well. You know, just cut off all their heads, break their knees. And frankly, Daenerys, this episode, you know, just... You know, if they don't do what I want, let's burn them. Whereas Tyrion in that situation is more of the Sansa being like, well, that doesn't sound like the most diplomatic politic thing to do uh, in the long run. Um, there was another Cersei uh, Daenerys analogy I saw when she's telling, uh, when Danny's telling John, you know, she's talking about her three terrifying children. She's like, no matter how big or how horrible they become, you know, they're, they're still my children to me. And I'm like, oh my God, it's Cersei. That's 100% how Cersei was uh, with even her most terrible child. And so I, I don't know if you sort of see it that way, that there are these two representations of force, you know, people who sort of are, are more of uh, a, a blunt hammer, uh, which we also see wielded this episode, uh, and, and people who uh, have more of a, a, a diplomatic touch. And, you know, the, neither one might be right all the time, but I feel like I see them breaking down along those axes. The only thing I would add to that, I think it's an astute observation, is that Tyrion is not going to be the guy you want to lead with for wisdom right now. Like, as an example of the wisdom of restraint, Tyrion has now kind of written himself out of the conversation. This, this guy's whole argument for serving his hand, this might be a Tyrion Lannister's H.R. McMaster moment. We're, we're not really seeing that, <laughs> that he's really able to turn this ship around. In, in any way, and when he ultimately has an idea, like, for instance, this Rube Goldberg scheme to bring a zombie to Westeros because reasons and, you know, that, that might be his, his advocacy of a, of a surge in Afghanistan for, for no good reason. But this circumstance seems to be uh, not really amenable to the type of, of solution that you want to see cultivate, but also you don't really know how to back down from this circumstance and, and get yourself out of it. Um, I, I, I think that Sansa and Jamie, Sansa out of mastery of a situation that she's, she's shown herself deft enough to handle, um, makes kind of like the most basic case one can make, you know, for, for not killing all your allies. You really don't have to be a strategic genius there, you know, to tell Sansa like, no, I'm not going to kill all of these people because they were, you know, saying mean things about our bro. Um, and then Jamie, you know, similarly doesn't really have such a difficult argument to make that one should recognize that you can't beat a nuclear weapon uh, when you don't have another nuclear weapon. So I, I, I definitely see more of, a, of, a, of an analogy on the Arya, Danny, Cersei side where, where you really do see all of them kind of congealing together around a conception of power. Um, but really the other guys either uh, on the other side of that equation either have an obvious argument or they have a stupid argument in the case of Tyrion. And, and so <laughs> I, I wonder what the show is really saying there about the alternatives to you know fire and blood-based rule. 
Um, this was a whole episode of, of plants that don't make a lot of sense. I, it's, it's, you make an interesting point about Tyrion uh, in terms of how poorly he's advised Daenerys. And it occurs to me now that you know, there's probably a, a comparison to be made between Tyrion and Olenna in terms of you know, wartime versus peacetime consiglieris, um, however you pronounce that word. You got it. Uh, but that's the thing. Elena, you know, sort of makes the point you have to come and be a dragon while, you know, Tyrion sits there and whispers in her ear, you know, please, please, please don't burn the men trying to kill us. You know, I, I, I think that Tyrion makes a lot of fantastic points, and I think that he might actually do a much better job as a Hand of the King actually trying to rule instead of conquer. Because, again, that's the thing we learn about Daenerys. She's a conqueror, not as much as a ruler. Tyrion is a ruler, uh, not as much of a conqueror, which is why uh, Daenerys's plans are actually doing much better than Tyrion's, while I think he's, you know, giving longer-term advice, right? About, you know, let's not destroy all these houses, because after you're done conquering, we're going to have to deal with that, and the stability of the land is going to be, uh, you know, at stake when we do that. And so I think that's as much what he's warring against as as he is, the, you know, the wisdom of his advice. I just think it's a different kind of wisdom. You make a great point. Uh, Tyrion is thinking about what, what the military typically calls phase four operations. Basically, after hostilities are finished, what do you do in order to secure a victory, sometimes called winning the peace, um, which, is, which is a poor way of putting it for a variety of reasons, I think. Um, you know, Tyrion is the guy basically saying, don't disband the Iraqi army. You're going to need it. But on the way there, he's, he's making terrible arguments for, for how you even get to phase four. He's, he's, he, may be, he may be really bad. He may not be suited for phase two and phase three, but that's where we are. And that's where Daenerys is. It seemed very strange that, that someone who's, you know, also built up as, as having, you know, this facility for statecraft in Varys is basically advising Tyrion, you got to make her listen to your terrible advice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think in retrospect, I'm just gonna, my headcanon is going to be that they all had some sort of brain disease this episode, because that's it kind of undermines a lot of the characters right where i, I feel like there's because so much of Varys's character Tyrion's character a lot of these characters are bound up in them being you know these geniuses these people who really have all of this insight it would be like you know if Littlefinger you know tried to pull off some scheme and tripped over his own dick and you'd be like well what that's his whole thing now I feel like I don't understand his character or anything that he's doing because that's the entire point of him it was a little weird to see all of these supposed wise military advisors sit around a table, uh, come up with a gobbledygook idea, and then high-five about it. You know, Tyrion's whole thing, I drink it, I know things. You know, maybe you don't want an alcoholic advisor. I mean, I don't, that's, I'm like, I think that's a little unfair, Spencer. Like, he doesn't drink that much <laughs> anymore. I mean, he doesn't, though. Okay. I actually went back and watched season one, and he is drunk pretty much all of the time. And season five? I think. And okay, let's just say a lot of seasons. I'm just okay. saying he's got it under control and <laughs> it's not a problem, okay? He's just a, he's just a heavy drinker. It's not a it's not a disease. But you mentioned Dick. I did mention Dick. So that seemed to be everything else in this episode was just Oh, dudely. It was extremely So bro many bros, so many daddy issues. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, it was like so many of the people are, are doing in some senses what they, you know, what they think at least their fathers would want them to do, right? Cersei is certainly trying to emulate her father. Sansa and Jon are trying to emulate their fathers. Um, and we also get that moment between uh, the two uh, bastard sons of uh, the, the once great rulers of the kingdom. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Gendry is back. He's back. Oh, man. And, like, I just love when Davos walks into the smith shop and is like, listen... I know that you probably have a lot going on in your life and this doesn't make sense. And he's like, let's go. And like grabs his like, his like go bag, like one of those Armageddon people that's like been waiting for this moment and like dashes out the door. Um, and that moment too, when, when he meets John finally at the wall and, and is like, and, 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 and Davos is like, whatever you do, don't tell him that you are uh, Robert Baratheon's son. And he's like, I'm Robert Baratheon's son. Let's be best friends forever. I couldn't believe that. Like what Gendry has nothing to do with anything that's happening. And he just decides for people that he's never met, 
you know, yeah, let's just go fight some people. I've got a hammer. I want to hit someone. Oh, he says it too. He says, listen, I know that I, I, I've known that there was something I was supposed to do. I didn't know what it was. I just knew I had to be ready for it. It's the plot, my friend. And the plot has come. It's here. It's knocking on your door. Get your go bag. That was like the actor's conversation with his agent <laughs> about like, what he's got to, like, commit to for Game of Thrones and, like, other work that he's got to just sort of forget about. By the way, Michael Gonan, veteran of the United States Marine Corps, uh, he was the first person to put this idea in my head. Uh, if Relore's prophecy is correct and Azor Ahai, the prince slash princess who was promised, is someone who pulls a flaming sword from the fire and ultimately will rule, the only person we ever actually see do that is Gendry. Uh, so I imagine at the end of this episode, you know, this is at, when Game of Thrones is over, this is this is my my big prediction. Uh, everyone's going to be dead, and like Fortinbras at the end of Hamlet, Gendry is going to sit the Iron Throne. After this episode, we will refer to him as Fortinbro. Azor Brohai. Azor Brohai, yes. Ooh, you outdid me. And, you know, he could, uh, if he did inherit the throne of his father, he could marry Sansa, uh, uniting the North and the South, and the the uh, the dream of their, their now-dead fathers. I have a son, you have a daughter. We'll merge our houses. See? It was the very the, first episode. I was going to say, they've been teasing this since season one, episode one, and we didn't even see it right in front of our faces. Listeners may know this, they may not. I am a literal bastard, uh, like... Jon Snow, although we're going to find out that's not really oh, true, but but, I, but, oh, but, oh, oh. but certainly by Gendry, I'm like I'm liking this 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 bastard bro alliance. Uh, this is this is uh, something to 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 really celebrate on television. Uh, one 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 uh, additional daddy issue uh, that I thought was worth mentioning because just one one only one, one other one. Um, thank you to my wife uh, for for pointing this out while it was happening. Samuel Tarley, literal citadel dropout. Oh, he absolutely is. He's also, by the way, doing what Randall Tarley actually wanted him to do, which is never go to the citadel. Uh, he he actually quotes his dad, who's dead, uh, talking about how like um, you know he's sick of do he's sick of reading what what better men have done in that terrible line from last year. So Samuel's working out some daddy issues even right now that he's you know. The, the head of Horn Hill. He doesn't even know his father's dead. His father, by the way, who somehow didn't notice that his Valyrian steel sword had gone missing and only one person could take it, his weak son, whose destination he knew. <laughs> I mean, maybe his wife talked him out of that. Does Randall Tarley seem like he listens to his wife? You know what? Maybe, you know, you know why he probably didn't do it. He got called by Cersei to go fight her stupid battle. I mean, you just hire, you, you hire a couple of guys. You go to the Citadel. You say, Sam, I'm getting the sword back. Punch him in the stomach a couple times. You get the sword. You go. You go meet Cersei. You have a Valerian steel sword. It, I mean, maybe, maybe he respected the game. Maybe he was like, wow, the boy finally grew a pair and did a thing. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's the one thing he always wanted him to do. I, I was rewatching the first season, and uh, I saw Sam's first appearance. You may recall where he lies down on the ground while people beat him with sticks rather than stand up because he's just he's too afraid to even wield a sword for a single moment against another person and this is the guy who just you know stole the valyrian uh great sword of his family and is you know charging away from the citadel towards action and it's totally not a penis metaphor no definitely not also not a penis metaphor the giant hammer that uh that gendry likes to swing around totally uh, he likes to swing around at two men who uh, uh, Davos manages to fool by telling them that he has some magic crab dick medicine. He has he has in, Wester, in his boat. He has Westerosi Cialis. I figure at that point it had to be like a commercial where like Gendry and 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 Davos are in like um, two like beached canoes, sort of like holding hands between them. Uh, while the sun sets. I mean, what, I, I don't know if it's, is it because everyone in power in Westeros right now is a woman that just, we had to get all this extra dick swinging in because this is a pretty dicky episode for, again, a story about a kingdom that is now ruled entirely by women. So let's just talk about Sam for a second, because like Sam is, has pretty much been as virtuous a character as we have left. You know, we, we have, we have very few Ned Starks, you know, left on this show. And, you know, Davos is one of them. And Sam's been another, someone who, who generally has put other people before themselves, grown legitimately, 
as a human being treats other people really well um, and demonstrates that that, that that is true virtue. He was uh, he was kind of a dick to his wife today. Yeah, I mean he. I mean, and the thing is too, you know, he was the one that taught her how to read. You know, really, really wanted her to get involved in his interests. She's sitting there, you know reading about all these cool facts, these cool nerdy facts about uh, the place where they live that he made her go to. Yeah. And he just is, she just does, he is not, he's he's kind of blowing her off and absolutely not listening to her, uh, which is unfortunate because in this situation, she happens to know maybe one of the most important facts that there is in Westeros. And he he doesn't hear her at all. And even just beyond that, like, you see, you see men um, and man boys do this all the time. You, you're punishing the woman you're with for liking the things that you like well. Yeah, which it's 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 one of those uh, one of those interesting little um, I I want to call it a it's not actually a paradox at all because it makes complete sense. Where in theory you want the person that you're with to enjoy the things that you enjoy, and I think you know sometimes you do to a degree uh, as long as it doesn't it's more in a fantasy sense though. As long as the other person doesn't become a real person in their own right with their own interests and desires and maybe competence in something, maybe even more competent than you at times like it's it's a fun idea but i think that often for a certain type of insecure person when that becomes a reality and a real person has the same real interests with them and are asked to regard that in a serious way they become kind of threatened and i think that's the analogy you're going for here yeah like he he was kind of i mean you experienced this in a, in a very real way but like it seemed like sam was kind of like uh slouching toward gamergate uh, I would say there's there's definitely a bit of it's it's interesting because as empathetic as Sam is, I mean there is a certain level of entitlement, and I think that he's gotten used uh, to seeing her in a particular way, you know, as this undereducated wildling woman, uh, and I think that's why when he's not really listening to anything that she's saying, I think that you know he just it's just sort of noise in the background. It's the teacher from Peanuts going mow 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 mow. Um, I there was a there was a comment that a um, uh, Tyrion made to to John about Sansa when uh, they reunited. He said something about how Sansa uh, was smarter than she let on, and John said, "Well, she's starting to let on." And I think that with Gil with Gilly too, I think she's a character that has shown a lot of strength more recently. She stood up to uh, to Sam's father in a, a pretty powerful way, and has stood up for Sam over and over in every single situation. And you know, now she's learned to read. She's you know discovering these really important facts. I think she's starting to let on and I don't think we see Sam recognizing that yet which I think is unfortunate because she always saw the strength in him when everyone else thought that he was a coward she saw the strength in him and she stood up for him and uh, I'd like to have him see her in a way that maybe better resembles the woman she has become than the woman that she used to be yeah I mean to say nothing of the fact that she survived a unthinkably traumatic life so Obviously, she's going to have this deep well of inner strength. Uh, we seem to have forgotten, like the 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 Craster, you know, subplot of the of this show. But what Gilly has had to live through, Sam can't even possibly imagine. Sam was never raped by his parents and forced to bear their children. No. Hopefully, Sam just you know had a bad day. He's been studying a little too long, but like that hit a certain nerve. That that whether uh, we're supposed to actually learned something ugly about Sam's character or whether it was just lazy writing. I don't know. I mean, it, it seemed like, you know, that they had the annulment conversation where they mentioned Rhaegar Targaryen. And it turns out that, you know, by mentioning that we're sowing the seeds of, of Jon Snow, maybe not actually being a bastard, that he's just a legitimate son of Rhaegar. But, you know, all Sam can do is like make a, a joke about, yeah, wouldn't it be interesting? Wouldn't it be nice to know my man? Yeah. And I, I think that we absolutely discover that John's not a bastard in that moment. There's yeah, no yeah. other point to that piece no, of information, except that John, John's not a bastard. He's actually one of the most important legitimate heirs that exists. But yeah, I, I think that you're absolutely right that they wanted to see that piece of information, perhaps without having uh, Sam know it, because if Sam knew it, then he would probably tell it to John. Um, but I think that the way that that scene was crafted just ended with Sam kind of looking like a self-absorbed self jerk, uh, which I think is unfortunate because, again, I, I think he's generally been a pretty great character. And I don't, you know, enjoy that 
turn for him. I mean, this is, it's not the same thing, but, you know, we had that scene, that love scene with Cersei and Jamie, which was actually a rape scene. And then the showrunners said, actually, we didn't mean it to mm-hmm. be a rape scene. It was a love scene. And it's like, well, okay, uh, that's unfortunate because you just made a scene that made me feel a completely different way about this character. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't know if this scene was crafted to make Sam look like a jerk, but that's what it did. I mean, it, it definitely seemed that after... I don't know. I mean, I'm more interested in what you think about this because this is your 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 professional wheelhouse and and it's not mine. But, you know, after so long of having uh the women in Westeros turn out to be the the pivotal characters, the decision makers, this episode just seems written with women as an afterthought that we're going to really deal with um these bro relationships. We're going to get, you know, this this weird like dirty dozen style alliance of the Brotherhood Without Banners and Gendry, you know, bros before snow. That that Ocean's Eleven thing at the end, too, where, like, every they managed to bring everyone to the same place. And, you know, John knows the Hound, Gendry knows Beric, Jorah knows Thoros, Tormund knows Mormont. And, you know, they all sort of, like, point fingers at each other, but then, like, realize they have a common enemy. And, like, then walk, like, in what should have been slow motion, like, out of the gates to, like, go fight. Not, and, not even to, and not even to go fight, to go, like, steal a zombie. Not... This, that's right, to steal a zombie. That's that's the Ocean's Eleven right, exactly. heist. They're going to go heist a zombie. Bros before snows. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. oh my God. And even, even uh, you know, one of the core relationships that I would love to see being developed more, which is Arya and Sansa, mm-hmm. uh, we, we get a little bit of, of them talking to each other, but then it seems like it's almost immediately undermined by Littlefinger, uh, who's, who's pulling his own weird plot with them. You know, with Arya, you know, she, at first we think that she has the upper hand, that she's scheming around on him, watching him, but then, you know, it turns out who's watching the Watcher? It's Littlefinger, and he's setting her up to discover this piece of information about Sansa that Arya has no context for, uh, that scroll that she received that's, you know, it was, she was forced by Cersei to, like, disavow her father and say Joffrey was the rightful king and blah, blah, blah. Again, Arya has no context for that because it seems like somehow she and Sansa have still not done a debrief, which is weird to me. Like, you think you would sit down and, like, have a cup of wine and, like, explain your incredibly weird lives for the last, you know, however many years to each other, but they haven't. So it seems like he's trying to drive a wedge between them. And, you know, again, like, it's it's unfortunate that, that one of the major pivot points, while Jon Snow is discovering his his new ultimate bro and Gendry and like all of these other guys are coming together that we see these two sisters sort of being torn apart by the machinations of Littlefinger. And speaking of the machinations of Littlefinger toward one end, I get that he's an agent of chaos and all that, but let's play this out as, as he says that he plays out every single variation. You cause dissension between Arya and Sansa. Arya kills Sansa. Then what? As we heard, um, the dude from the Vale, Jan Royce, say the only reason the Vale is there is for Sansa. Uh, there are whole lots of people at Winterfell, including that dude Glover, who are saying at this point, you know, Jon Snow might have been the wrong choice. We're here for you, Sansa. So if now Sansa's killed, why is that good for Littlefinger? Uh, if it turns out that there's just tension within the Stark household that doesn't have a clear resolution. Why is that good for Littlefinger? How does any of this get him toward the throne? It seems like at this point, chaos for no reason. Yeah, it's interesting because, again, I, I think he's trying to drive a wedge between the sisters, but I, I think that your point is good. What is the point of making Arya upset with Sansa? If anything, you would think he would want to man- manufacture some piece of information that would make Sansa upset with Arya. Right. Why do you want to make the you know incredibly dangerous assassin upset with the one person who is, if not actually important to you in the traditional sense, important to your plans? Uh, it's a weird thing to do. And why doesn't, at this point, whether it's, Sansa, whether it's Arya, whether it's whoever, just someone go to Bran and just be like, so what do we need to know? Yeah, I I also noticed that, so Bran has a vision in these ravens that he sends north of the wall, and apparently he goes back and everyone believes him enough to send a raven uh, to the Citadel. So at this point, we're believing in his visions enough that we're, you know, making major advisories to, you know, important bodies uh, and institutions in Westeros. Yeah, how at that point do you not say, so what's going on with the war? You can see the future? Cool. Uh, What should John do? What should we do? What should any of us do? I don't know. 
again, these are more more bad plans in the north. Let's not ask Bran anything about the future, and let's have Littlefinger uh, uh, anger uh, Arya to the point where uh, she might become dangerous to Sansa. And, and also, you know, Bran, OPSEC violator of all OPSEC violators. He's talking, you know, openly on an intercepted line. Uh, the Night King can see everything that he's doing, can presumably hear everything that's going on at this point. Uh, someone at least, like, have Bran download Signal. Uh, he can watch the PGP tutorial that, that Edward Snowden set up for, for, for Glenn Greenwald. Just none of this really makes a lot of sense. It, it seems like, you know, it's an episode very much inspired by the kind of uh, blinkered, uh, inhuman vision of Bran that passes itself off as omniscience, much like, dare I say, patriarchy. Oh, see, I like how you're bringing it all full circle. Bros before snows. Bros before snows. And the and the episode ends with all of the bros at the wall going off on their mission. Uh, and it's even, oh God, there's even a, like, you have my axe moment. Ah, it's true. <laughs> you, have, you have Gendry's giant penis hammer. Touch it, bro. Why... Why Why is any of this happening, Spencer? Any of it? Why is it about bros right now? Why are all of the plans bad? What is anyone doing? Why are they doing it? Why? She, she, she whispers into the darkness. <laughs> well, uh, you know, and it's, it's, the, it's, it's quite a capper for a week in which, like, the second most disgusting thing the President of the United States did was to, you know, uh, escalate uh, the rhetoric around, you know, potential nuclear war with North Korea. You know, obviously the first being forming an, an apology-driving equivalence with Nazi rioters in Charlottesville. Um, so I have no idea what anything, you know, means anymore. None of this makes sense. None of this is going to make sense, uh, it seems. So uh, with that said, this has been another episode of Citadel Dropouts. Uh, produced every week by the amazing and patient Jeremy Dalmas. Thanks to everyone uh, who's been who's been listening to us, who's been who's been writing in, who's been tweeting at us. Um, if you wouldn't mind, please, please, please leave us a review on iTunes. Um, that is, if you really like the show. If you don't like the show, do nothing. You're doing nothing wrong. Continue <laughs> with your pattern as if I had never said anything. Um, until next week, uh, as we as we barrel toward the conclusion of this abbreviated season of Game of Thrones, Laura, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, they can find me uh, often at Wired, where I write my Game of Thrones recaps, and they can find me on Twitter at Laura underscore Hudson. And I'm Spencer Ackerman. You can find me uh, covering national security at the Daily Beast, and you can find me on Twitter at Attackerman. Uh, thanks very much for another episode of Citadel Dropouts, this time joined by Sam the Slayer, an actual Citadel Dropout. Uh, we will take full responsibility for that decision of the showrunners. Uh, Till next week, thanks again, uh, and we're out. <laughs>